present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge that the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday breakfast listeners. Back in the studio here, we've got myself, Claudia, and Sunera. Hi, good morning, everyone. How are you this morning, Sunera? I'm doing well, um, you know, just getting back into things. Yeah. It's not long before university goes back, so uh, yes. yeah, last couple of weeks of yes. uh, so-called free time. I know you're a busy person. <laughs> Yeah, I try to have some free time lately, but yeah. We've got a busy show today, but firstly, um, I thought we would just mention um, the tragedy uh, happening in Turkey and Syria at the moment. The latest um, news coming through this morning is that the death toll has surpassed 7,200 people and... Yeah, at least 8,000 have been rescued from the debris and 380,000 taking refuge in shelters. So just wanted to acknowledge that and say our thoughts are with the Syrian and Turkish communities in Australia at this time. Now turning to the program, we have a special uh, segment this morning on refugee activism. Sonera, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yep. Um, so we'll hear from two rallies that took place last week. Uh, firstly, from the Refugee Action Coalition, where we'll hear the voices of various activists about lifting the ban on resettlement in Australia. And then we'll go to a rally that happened on last Thursday, about granting study rights to refugee and asylum, uh, and asylum seekers. Excellent. And then at around 10 to 8, we'll be speaking with Jessica Owl, author of Cold Enough for Snow, a novella which won the 2023 Victorian Premier's Literature Prize for Fiction and the Overall Literature Prize. So they were announced last week and we'll be speaking with Jessica live uh, a little bit later. And then following that at around 10 past eight, we'll have Nerita Waite, the CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Service with us. And she'll be talking about the latest developments on bail reform uh, following the uh, coronial inquest of uh, a First Nations person, uh, which was handed down just over a week ago, and also the Greens' announcement, uh, putting an ultimatum to the Andrews government to bring in bail reform within three months. So we'll be hearing from Narita, uh, yeah, just after eight o'clock. Yep, and uh, we'll be back um, with our show just after a short break of 
uh, a song and some uh, community service announcements. Commons Conversations is a series of podcasts in which campaigners share their experiences and insights into activism, learning in movements, radical history and more. Produced by the Commons Social Change Library, it focuses on lessons learnt from involvement in First Nations, disability, AIDS, climate justice, wage theft, disaster recovery and other campaigns. To listen to the series, visit www.3cr.org.au slash acting up. Have you experienced or seen racism against black followers? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.
too old to go chasing you around, wasting my precious energy. That was Give Me One Reason by Tracy Chapman. And now we're going to go to our first segment um, with refugee activists Margaret Sinclair and Ian Rintoul of the Refugee Action Coalition on their witness of the harsh, harsh survival life of, for refugees in Indonesia and the need to end the ban on resettlement in Australia and the Albanese government's response uh, premise for the refugees. To learn more about what went on in the forum, you can watch the full video on Eyewitness from Indonesia, End the Refugee Ban Now on YouTube. Hi everyone, it's Grace. Until today, there are 14,000 refugees who are left stranded in Indonesia and many from there are banned from resettlement in Australia. Last October, refugees activists Ian Rental and Margaret Sinclair from Refugee Action Coalition went on a fact-finding tour and we listened about their witness of the survival life for refugees in Indonesia, the need to end resettlement ban and the Albanese government promise for the refugees. Now we first hear from Margaret Sinclair. It was very shocking to see many of the conditions that our refugees were living in. And I don't think anyone in Australia would have much of an idea unless they had gone and seen. So we know what the effects of uncertainty is on a person's mental health. We've seen it uh, with people in long-term detention in Australia and on Manus and Nauru, and those effects are quite um, real as well in Indonesia. Um, the, but quite apart from that, there are other conditions which I think makes keeping uh, refugees in Indonesia long-term untenable. And we know that people are kept there because of Operation Sovereign Borders um, that kept pushing people back or refusing to let people through. We've had the, the ban uh, on anyone who registered after July 2014. We had Scott Morrison in that same year in 2014 also uh, reducing the number of people that Australia took. And altogether, that's left a lot of people in limbo for a very long time. 
some of the conditions that uh, we found um, for the two thirds of those 14,000 people who live in IOM accommodation, that's International Organisation uh, for Migration, was that none of it at all was suitable not for families, not for single people, but particularly, I think, for families. There were um, uh, single rooms that were used for whole families. There's kitchens um, on one floor of an accommodation block that was used by families across two floors of that accommodation block or more. Um, there was um, nothing at all that that showed that any of these buildings or other uh, structures had been receiving any maintenance. So uh, it was very run down. Um, a lot of stairs, which is not suitable for people who have um, mobility difficulties or for young children. Um, we had, uh, I think, uh, for all that accommodation, uh, it was none of it at all was definitely suitable for children. There's no play equipment. We were at one place where um, a child had gone over the side of um, a handrail and had been badly injured. We didn't see that. We were just told about it. Um, the the situation for uh, the children is particularly bad for um, anyone who's born in Indonesia. Um, there's no child and maternal health care. There's no monitoring of uh, whether children are reaching milestones or not. Um, there were a number of children who were undiagnosed but most likely had ADHD or on the autism spectrum. Um, and also we know of some children who even several years uh, later are still nonverbal. There's really not appropriate medical care for uh, people in Indonesia because um, it's all paid for or not paid for by the Australian government through IOM, the International Organisation for Migration, uh, who quite regularly message people to say there's no budget. There's no budget for the more expensive but effective medications. There's no budget to see specialists such as orthopedic surgeons or speech therapists, physiotherapists and the like. Um, there's um, a, a, the sort of situation where um, as time goes on, the medical needs are more complex because you have a mixture of physical and psychological conditions that are just not being met. And uh, you know, even since we uh, came back from Indonesia, I did receive a message from uh, one person in Makassar showing that their refugee clinic was now not giving free medical care for, um, for anyone who came in, except for the first time that they came in that week. And for the other situations, people needed to um, pay. We went to accommodation where um, people had uh, come to Jakarta for medical care, but they had to make a choice between being able to afford food and being able to afford um, to afford the transport to a hospital or to see a doctor. So the whole situation is just one of deep, deep despair and it is getting worse because the amount of money that people are given in Indonesia through IOM, uh, the $125 Australian per month for an adult, the $50 
per month for a child or for those who used to be children because they're still given that amount doesn't go far enough. Uh, the cost of living has tripled in Indonesia. The cost of food has tripled in Indonesia, but the amount of money that people get has remained the same for over a decade. And for those who don't get any funding at all, it's even worse. So the, the situation is of course caused by Australia not letting people through on a safe pathway by expanding the humanitarian program in our region. And if the problem can be caused by the Australian government, the solution is also there too. Now we listen to Ian Rintoul. Um, I mean, it is difficult to sum up. I mean, anyone who is familiar with the situation for refugees in detention in Australia or on Nauru and Manus Island will understand what's happening in, you know, in Indonesia. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I thought I knew a fair bit. Um, I was familiar, you knew that people were being, you know, incarcerated in, you know, in Indonesia, but there's nothing quite like going there and seeing the situation. It's a bit like the first time you see Villawood actually be, you know, confront with the reality of what they're putting up with. And IOM, uh, the International Organisation for Migration, which you know, pretends to be a UN organisation but isn't, which is funded by, you know, governments around the world really to do their dirty business in uh, places like, you know, like Indonesia and other, other countries. I and mean, it does have a partnership arrangement with the UN, but it's certainly got no human rights mandate or uh, anything, uh, you know, sort of refugee rights mandate and they're the people who are uh, responsible and are funded um, you know over 80 percent we haven't got the most recent figures but they're funded by over 80 percent from what we know by you know by Australia they're the people who actually provide the accommodation uh, and uh, provide the uh, you know the income support that Margaret's uh, talked about but IOM has got a singular capacity to find the most you know decrepit rundown um, you know, places that you could find. I mean, it's certainly like people are familiar with the kind of houses that immigration finds or sometimes settlement services here find for people who are being placed, at, you know, placed in detention. But Margaret went through a little bit of it. You know, they, it's difficult to describe without seeing it, the degree of the, the, the overcrowdedness, the, the, un, the unhygienic uh, the, the unhygienic standards, the difficulties that people have with the lack of services and the lack of resources in the place. Although I have to say, I'm always amazed and astonished by the you know the ingenuity and the capacity of people who you know have got nothing to be able to do you know enormous things even if they have to go up and down four flights of stairs to actually cook on the uh, the bottom flight even whether it's you know pouring rain and teeming rain to actually carry the food back up and in tiny rooms that were many places that were for student accommodation so that's a very tiny room but now are housing you know accommodating whole you know whole families. Uh, I think the other aspect, which Nilfa sort of touched on as well, is that for the general situation for refugees, as far as the Indonesian government is concerned, they're illegal immigrants. So there's no right to work. There's limited right to education. Actually, people generally can go to, I can go into that maybe a little bit later, but uh, people can go to primary school. Uh, generally, generally they don't, they don't uh, but people don't have any right to education kind of beyond that. So they can't, they don't, they don't work. Um, they are not allowed to drive, not allowed to property, not allowed to get married. Um, there's a curfew in the IOM, IOM accommodation and people sometimes are uh, taken to detention uh, if they break that curfew or they're back, you know, they're back, uh, back late or whatever. There's no detention presently in Indonesia um, except it's used as, it's used as punishment. Um, but that came to an end in around, you know, 2017, 2000, 2018. So people now are now accommodated in those rundown 
you know, rundown, run, rundown accommodation. There's two, two dates I want people to go away from this meeting to, you know, keep in their heads. One is once already been mentioned, July 2014. The other date is, is March 2018. Because what that what happened on that date was that IOM actually refused to provide um, income support for anyone who arrived after March 2018, or in some cases provide you know accommodation. So we saw you know people who uh, well one family in Caladeras, uh, which is a very you know that's, a, that's another story it deserves a, to, to be told um, you know itself. But it's a it's not run by IOM. Actually, the refugees have taken over what used to be a military. Uh, you know, compound and are running themselves, even though the power and the water has been turned out off and they've had to reconnect that themselves. People live inside, you know, tents inside this uh, inside this building. Um, now, I forgot what I was going to tell you about. I oh, know <laughs> that we found one family yeah, in there um, of uh, six, uh, but they they have to exist on one in 1,250,000 rupees, $125 a month, a family of six trying to survive on $125 dollars a month because IOM won't pay for the man's wife or his four children because they arrived after you know, to uh, March 2000, you know, 2018. And there's many, many of those stories. Um, I've got many, many, many people that we found uh, that who, it, it, what it looks like is that already prior to the ban being implemented in June, June 2014, were already being rejected by Australia. So people who were 2012, 2013, 2014, so many of them rejected in, in, inexplicably uh, have been you know have been rejected including people who've got very very well established you know credentials from working with the Australian ADF or the American ADF in uh, in uh, forces in you know in, in Afghanistan so they're the two dates to remember because although there's 14,000 uh, refugees in uh, in Indonesia about 7,000 of them are, are Afghan but there's all about only about 11,000 are actually um, income income supported. Um, IOM says that's because uh, Australia cut the funding in, 2000, in 2018, which is also another reason I think that we've got to, uh, you know, take up uh, or at least to establish, you know, that it is Australia's responsibility what is happening in Indonesia and Australia has a responsibility for the accommodation, for the lack of support uh, and, uh, you know, and everything, and, and everything else. Um, so there's many uh, there's many things that I can go go you know could go into. I think the other thing uh, I think it's important to get, understand is that every every week in every city where there are uh, re refugees being housed, except Jakarta, there are demonstrations. There are demonstrations outside UNHCR. Now they've been going on for at least at least a couple of years, and sometimes you know longer longer than that. But they're they're every week outside the UNHCR demanding. You know, the demanding issues about their, their you know, their resettlement, uh, their accommodation, their, their situation in uh, in Indonesia. Now, some of those are actually quite savagely repressed. I mean, we saw one example in Makassar where they, one one evening, not long before we uh, were actually in Makassar, where they turned the turned the lights out. The police came towards the end of the end of the demonstration, bashed, hospitalised uh, a number of the refugees, including and you know, including children, to try and. Get the clean the you know they get the demonstrations off the street. We see unfortunately situations in which UNHCR itself has threatened refugees who have actually camped outside their headquarters uh, that it's unlawful to do that, and the fact that they're involved in unlawful activity will be noted on their records, and that they may, may well not be resettled because they've been involved in that kind of unlawful in kind of that un, in that unlawful that unlawful activity. 
Now they're the they're the kinds of things which really it's Australia's Australia support for IOM and for UNHCR, uh, which is um, you know doing resulting in those um, in those uh, you know those kinds of those those kinds of things. So other things that we were we were told, I mean, it's a pity. I mean, hopefully we can get can get Muhammad, but we met the Rohingya man actually. He's one of the representatives for the UNHCR in in, uh, in Makassar. Now he said to me point blank, you know, that there is not one Rohingya has actually been resettled from Indonesia since 2012, um, and uh, they, they haven't been told that there's a ban, but there clearly is a ban. There clearly is a ban on Africans. Uh, there's the Africans aren't resettled from Indonesia here, and nor and nor <clears throat> near Pakistanis. Now those things, I've, and I've asked around about whether there's a clear indication from the Australian government about what their priorities are about UNHCR resettlement. I've not seen that, but the practical reality is that you've got people who are not just warehoused, but are indefinitely warehoused and suffer from that uh, ban at the moment. They have no possibility of actually coming, you know, coming to Australia. I think the other thing, I mean, it's not been established so you know clearly already, you know that. Indonesia is every bit a part of the border protection, Australia's border protection regime, right from right from the beginning. You know the fact that uh, people were uh, turned back. We actually met one one person in uh, in Jakarta who was on the first boat that was turned back from uh, you know from Australia, you know, to Indonesia. That was two thousand and uh, I think it was two thousand and fourteen. Actually, he's still in he's still in Jakarta. Uh, there's one family uh, that's been in in, in Indonesia since two, since. 2000. They've been there 22 years um, without, uh, you know, without uh, being without being resettled. So I think they're they're some of the things that I think that um, we're hopeful. I mean, I think we have known about Indonesia. Indonesia has been part of what we've campaigned about. We've known about the ban in 2014. We've raised that ban, you know, as part of what the refugee movement uh, has done since 2000 since 2014. But I think in the present situation, um, we need to you know push you know, push the issue of Indonesia actually up, up the agenda. One of the reasons for that is actually the, 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 not just the Afghans, but I think the Afghans have exposed, you know, part of the complete, um, um, I can't think of the word, you know, but the, the, the problems associated with, with uh, you know, with Indonesia, the lack of, the lack of resettlement. They, what, uh, what Giles says at the moment from the people who've been to see him is that there will be no announcement about about Indonesia, even though if you look at the ALP policy, they're actually committed uh, to reviewing the situation with the implication that actually the ban might be li might be lifted. But that's not what the government has said so far, and that's not what they've what they've indicated. Um, so, so, but they have said that they're going to settle sixteen and a half thousand. That's what Morrison agreed to. Sixteen and a half thousand Afghans are going to be resettled outside the usual quota over the next four years. Now, the seven thousand Afghans in in you know in Indonesia, right? If they wanted to fulfil that quota, uh, or even to part of that quota, they could go tomorrow and get seven thousand Afghans who are in, in in Indonesia, and not just do something about their situation, but do something about the, about the situation of the of the families and the relatives that they've left behind in Afghanistan, you know, in Pakistan. And again, the stories that are you know that are told about that are just you know are heartbreaking as they always as they always are. Um, and the, in the same way, it's fairly clear to me that um, some of the people who were who uh, were coming to Indonesia were bought that were joined their, their, their husbands and fathers in 2017, 2018, 2019, just prior to the Taliban takeover. I mean, I don't know. I couldn't really establish 
whether that's because they were um, becoming aware that that was a possibility and so therefore the situation was becoming much more you know precarious or just the separation was so long but it's clearly the fact that quite a number of uh, uh, women and children actually joined their fathers and husbands in that period but as I said before because if they came after 2018 they've got no they've got no kind of support and we also found two examples where people who attempted to support their families by baking bread and selling it to locals or even selling it to refugees actually were, were arrested you know and and uh, detained and with the with the um okay if you like with the acquiescence of UNHCR uh, cracking and uh, cracking, allowing immigration to crack down on people who were, you know, trying to exist in that uh, in that way. So, um, yeah, maybe that's enough enough for me. We need to make Indonesia much more well known in you know, the refugee the refugee movement, and we need to campaign absolutely to end the to end the ban. That ban needs to be lifted, and we also need to campaign to increase the increase the allowance. So things that the Australian government can and should and must do something about. That was refugee activists Ian Rintoll and Margaret Sinclair from Refugee Action Coalition who witnessed the lives of the refugees and their fight to gain resettlement in Australia. You can head to Refugee Action Coalition's YouTube page and search Eyewitness from Indonesia and the Refugee Ban Now. The forum video to understand more about the refugees' life in Indonesia. Now I'll be passing back to Claudia and Sonera. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. Thank you to Grace for that solid segment. Um, and now we'll head on to the rally on Thursday from Teachers for Refugees, which demanded that the Albanese government grant full study rights to all refugee and asylum seekers. Concerned, we are teachers, we are academics, we are young refugees ourselves, other high school students, um, and other just concerned members of the public, retired teachers wearing grandmother's t-shirt over there as well. Fantastic that you're here too. Um, as I said before, both the ABC and SBS have expressed interest in today and we are doing some filming of today's sent to the ABC and I believe that the Bankstown Torch were also sending somebody. Hello, you're welcome. Um, so yes, we do want to spread this around on social media afterwards. If you are on Teachers for Refugees New South Wales on Facebook, Rachel is live feeding. Go to your Facebook and you can share it and we might get some more people viewing as we go as well. I guess the other thing, as I'm introducing um, Carly Hawkins, our next speaker, Carly is from the Refugee Education Special Interest Group, which is a group of university academics who campaign and lobby for greater access to university 
uh, and other tertiary education for refugees and asylum seekers on temporary visas. They've got a wonderful website with resources and information about all the scholarships that are available, but they're very clear about saying that there aren't enough. And one of the things that has probably led to this protest today was that during the September school holidays, we had a joint forum at UTS of Teachers for Refugees and the Refugee Education Special Interest Group um, with very good attendance. And from that, we thought, what else should we be doing to campaign? One of the things that we have both endorsed, both groups, is a sign-on letter. <clears throat> a sign-on letter that there are copies of on the table as well, has a QR code in the top corner. I've got one, I just came from there. Get a, maybe you should get a brain. Okay, so, um, sorry, I shouldn't waste my breath. Um, so there is a QR code on there. We have about 60 people who've signed it, uh, mostly in New South Wales. We were gonna present it to the office here today, but it seems like nobody's coming outside. Um, well, so we might keep cir circulating it. I know that other states have not yet circulated it, and when we get to a critical number, we may come back to officially present it to the minister's concern. So yes, that, that has been an outcome of that, and many people, when they sign it, give uh, reasons why they're signing it. I'm not gonna read them all, I might if there's a chance later on. But Carly, getting back to Carly, Carly is part of the Refugee Education Special Interest Group. She's also uh, used to teach on Nauru Island. And I know the schools ended up getting closed down. The teachers there tried to make things that little bit better for the people who were there. And now she's a PhD candidate at UNSW, focusing on the impact of detention on refugees' education. So welcome, Carly, to the microphone. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Carly. Thank you for having me here today. And um, it's not often that I speak publicly, um, partially due to the laws that prevented me from speaking with up to two years imprisonment. Um, so I just wanted to come here to talk about my experience. So I'm a teacher. Um, I lecture now at UNSW, and I spent three years working in Nauru as a teacher. And in that time, I saw the most appalling and inhumane conditions I've ever seen in my life. Everything that I saw in offshore detention was completely inconsistent with best practice for children. What we know as teachers, learning environments, schooling, all of the things that help children learn were non-existent in Nauru in offshore detention. So these children were expected to somehow get an education in Nauru, in offshore detention, living in hot, mouldy tents, with parents who weren't allowed to buy their children books or pens because they didn't have any money. There were no teachers who specialised in English as a second language. There were no teachers that um, specialised in trauma-informed teaching. And these students were just expected to engage in education. I used to always think to myself, I wonder if Scott Morrison would send his daughters to school here. And these students, we, over three years, I saw a regression. The children started to become very depressed. Rates of self-harm went through the roof. There were suicide attempts and a complete 
loss of hope due to the uncertainty and this living in limbo. Children withdrew, the situation was absolutely dire and thanks to groups like this and others, they moved all of the families off Nauru by early 2019. So these children that suffered had to be medivacted for specialist treatment. So the problem that the government created in offshore detention, then they had to fix it by sending them here. So then the students came here, had to get psychological help, mental health um, intervention, and then were expected just to go to Australian schools. And guess what happened? They succeeded. They did well. They were resilient and driven and overcame all of the barriers that many of us never had to go through. And they swapped their classes and they got university um, accept, uh, offers. But children from Nauru couldn't accept them. So one, uh, one student I know who did her HSC two years ago got three offers from universities to study law. So she got into a Bachelor of Law at three universities on a full scholarship. The government did not have to pay one thing for her to attend university. And because she came from Nauru, what did the government say to her? No, you can't go. She did her last, she did her high schooling here in Australia, in Sydney, and is now doing nothing two years later. She could be two years into a law degree. Shame. Absolutely shame. Another student I know, um, a young gentleman from Nauru, he's now about 21, he got an ATAR of 89. That is much higher than the ATAR I got. And he wanted to be an engineer. He wanted to study, but he has absolutely no rights. He could not go to any university, so for the last three years, He's been sitting at home doing nothing, trying to get a job, but guess what? He can only get minimum wage jobs because he can't get the qualifications to get the higher paid jobs. We have a worker shortage here in Australia. Everyone knows that. And we have thousands of people on temporary visas, on bridging visas, on chefs who cannot get the qualifications to get the jobs. These are people who are determined they want to work, they want to contribute to Australian society. And what I've seen, these children that I knew when they were teenagers, and now they're in their early 20s, they're wasting away at home doing absolutely nothing, still living in limbo, just like offshore detention. Sure, they might have air conditioning here in Australia, but they don't have any future at this point unless they get their study rights. And I just want to say to the government that we have a a plethora of people that are the future teachers, the future lawyers, the future mechanics, the future engineers, the future doctors, the future nurses, and they have been systematically denied education. Um, and like our other speaker said, the right to education is a human right under the United Nations. And as Australia, we are systematically denying that human right. Why did I have the right to go to university here? Why am I a teacher? Well, I was born here. Nothing I did of my own volition got me there. I was born here. So yes, we actually do deny people education based on their postcodes, on where they're born. And it is a real shame. And I just ask the Australian government to sow into the next generation. We have incredible, resilient, and great young people like our first and second speakers who are desperate to get into education so they can get into the workforce and contribute to this country that is their country. So thank you for listening today. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. 
Um, and that was the Teachers for Refugees rally. If you want to find out more about their progress on this issue, you can head to their Facebook page titled Teachers for Refugees NSW, which is, which is short for New South Wales. And if you want to support the campaign yourself, we'll link the uh, we'll link a support uh, sorry we'll link the support letter on our show notes later on. Uh, we'll be back after a short song break. But I know I'll see it soon It's been a long time since I've seen your face But I know I'll see it soon It's been a long time since I've seen your face But I know I'll see it soon Tell everybody out there I'm coming Make some room Oh, won't you help me But I know I'll see it soon It's been a long time since I've seen you smile But I know I'll see it soon It's been a long time since I've seen you smile But I know I'll see it soon Tell everybody up there I'm coming Make some room Oh, won't you help me I know I'll hear it soon Tell everybody up there I'm coming Make some room Oh, won't you help me
And that was Make Room by Bridie King. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Sonera and Claudia. Our next guest is Jessica Au, winner of the Victorian Premier's Literature Prize for 2023. Jessica's novel, Cold Enough for Snow, tells the story of a mother and daughter travelling in Japan. But there are layers of meaning within the text. One Guardian reviewer described it as a book of inference and small mysteries. The publisher calls it a reckoning and elegy. Al has previously worked as deputy editor at Mianjin and fact checker at Eon magazine. Cold Enough for Snow has been translated into 18 languages and previously won the inaugural The Novel Prize. We're delighted to speak to Jessica live on breakfast. Good morning, Jessica. Morning, Claudia. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Congratulations on taking out both the Fiction Prize and the overall Premier's Literature Prize. What was your reaction when you heard you had won last week? Um, pure shock. <laughs> I think um, my mind sort of blanked out. I can't quite remember exactly what I said on stage, but it was, yeah, utter amazement and I think just then gratitude. <laughs> yeah, absolutely tremendous. We're going to hear a passage from the novel shortly, um, but before that, I just wanted to ask you how you felt about a particular comment that the judges made, where in commending you, they say that your novel holds the heft of a writer in full command of her craft. I wondered how that made you feel and whether it creates a pressure for you now as a writer. Um, I don't know if I, I mean, I think it, it's, it's extremely flattering to hear something like that. Um, but I guess I would say that generally as a writer yourself, you don't feel like you're ever in full command of your craft. I think that um, writing is always difficult. It's, you know, every time you write something, you're not sure if you can ever really write anything again. Um, and I think that even the very nature of writing means that you, you have to kind of be pushing yourself um, you never, you never sort of reach this state of, you know, completeness and being. You're always kind of questioning things, and you're always searching for different ways to do things. Um, but I suppose that I guess they meant it hopefully with a satisfying reading experience, which is which is great to hear, of course. Um, I don't know if, if that comment in particular puts um, pressure on me. I, I guess um, I wasn't feeling too much pressure about writing anything um, really at the start of this year um but there's a little bit now i have to say just because um it's sort of uh in the public consciousness a little bit more um but i think i think that's sort of natural and i, I think um you know with time that will sort of fade um but yeah a, a little bit of pressure i would say <laughs> mm, yeah it's um there's sort of that double-edged sword isn't it <laughs> Yeah, you're sort of aware of it being read a little bit more, which I think for so long you're working on it and you're, you're just working on it and reading it yourself. It feels very contained. Mm. Um, so that is that extra element that is there. And you talked a bit about the the way you felt writing the book. Um, and I was interested in the process. I was listening to another interview you gave uh, where you said you spent a lot of time thinking and conceptualising your ideas before you began writing. Can you tell us a bit about what this process involved? Um, yeah, I mean, it was quite difficult. And if I look back, I would say it was, 
it was a bit of a struggle. Um, but I think it was a combination between a couple of things. It was trying out ideas on the page in other forms um, and knowing that maybe there was something there to, to spark something, but at the same time realising that they weren't working with it, that particular narrative container. Um, but then just really holding on to that idea and thinking over a bit more and thinking, why am I drawn to this? Why, what is it here that I, I keep on needing to work out? So it's a bit sort of, um, I guess, therapeutic in a way, trying to work out a problem on the page. Um, mm. But in another sense, it was also, I think, just reading really widely and, um, you know, seeing a lot of things, travelling, paying attention to art, paying attention to the mood of film, um, poetry, just really absorbing as much as I could. And somehow those two things may be talking together, the kind of, um, you know, picking up of lots of different aesthetic influences, plus the kind of, uh, you know, I guess, mental or existential struggle that, you know, what's happening on the page and trying to find the right shape for both of those to come together. I really like the way that you articulated that and it's really encouraging for writers, I think, to hear that even if something wasn't working in its initial form, you're able to hold on to that kernel of the idea or the the truth of what you were trying to get at and then bring it out in a different form because I think so often writers, me included, you can get a bit despondent if something's not working and you feel like you've put all this effort in and it hasn't kind of come out the way you expected it. But I think that's this really nice um, subversion of that experience to to say, well, hey, what have I got here? And, yeah, let's hold on to that and maybe it'll be useful some other time. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think that's really common and I think, but I do think that whatever it is, you know, it may not take the form you wanted it to, that pristine idea you had before you started writing the short story down or whatever down, but it, it does come out some way. Um, and also I think there's something to be said, to, you know, sort of knowing when you're ready to write about something, it's, to me, that's sort of, it's like the peak of a wave or something, catching it. It's, you can't really do it too early because it's almost too raw um, and you're, you're too close to it. But maybe at that point where you've just about finished processing it or think you, you think you're on the edge of processing it, that to me is, is sort of a really fruitful time. Mm, I love that uh, metaphor, riding the wave. <laughs> Now, you have selected an extract um, from the novella to read, and we'd love to, to hear that. The, the judges described your prose as like a river, pulling the reader along as the story pulls and eddies, flowing steady and deep. So I think that's a perfect entry point to ask you to, to read a little bit for our yeah, listeners. Sure. Um, yeah, so this um, passage happens about midway through the book um, and it takes place when the mother and daughter are travelling between um, Tokyo and Kyoto. I had some trouble at first finding the church but eventually we came across it, a low box-like building in a quiet neighbourhood and entered. Inside, the walls were made of raw concrete which absorbed most of the light making the interior dim and grey. The floor was not flat but sloped ever so slightly downwards, as if pulling everything towards the simple southern altar. On the wall behind the altar, two great cuts had been made, one from floor to ceiling and the other horizontally, so that they resembled a giant cross. 
As we sat, all our attention was focused on this large shape and the brilliant white light that streamed through the gaps in contrast to the subdued atmosphere of the room. The effect was riveting, not unlike staring out at the daylight through the opening of a cave. And perhaps, I said to my mother, this too was what it had felt like to be in the earliest churches, when nature itself was still a force in the world, visceral and holy. I said also that the architect had originally intended the cross to be unsealed, so that air and weather would have gusted through the openings, like the will of God itself. It was a cold, grey day, and we were the only two people in the room. I asked my mother what she believed about the soul, and she thought for a moment. Then, looking not at me, but at the hard, white light before us, she said that she believed we were all essentially nothing, just a series of sensations and desires, none of it lasting. When she was growing up, she said that she had never thought of herself in isolation, but rather as inextricably linked to others. Nowadays, she said, people were hungry to know everything, thinking they could understand it all, as if enlightenment were just around the corner. But, she said, in fact, there was no control, and understanding would not lessen any pain. The best we could do in this life was to pass through it, like smoke through the branches, suffering until we either reached a state of nothingness or else suffered elsewhere. She spoke about other tenets of goodness and giving, the accumulation of kindness like a trove of wealth. She was looking at me then, and I knew that she wanted me to be with her on this, to follow her, but to my shame, I found that I could not, and worse, that I could not even pretend. Instead, I looked at my watch and said that visiting hours were almost over and that we should probably go. So beautiful. Thank you. Would you like to share a bit about the themes you're exploring? We've said um, there is so much in this book, though, though it's a very slender, less than 100 pages, but uh, it's really quite a complex book in the guise of simplicity. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those layers? Um, yeah, I think that uh, probably a couple of things. I mean, number one, there's obviously that relationship between art and life, um, you know, the narrative sort of feeling that she um, connects very deeply with art. It tells her something about life, but she doesn't necessarily feel that she is an artist or capable of being one. Um, there's also sort of her just feeling about what it's like to be a young woman in the world and, you know, those moments that happen, I think, which are often very difficult to articulate um, where, you know, the world encounters you and you, you are told that you appear and are differently to how you feel. Um, and then probably, I guess, the, one of the biggest themes between the mother and the daughter is definitely about family and memory and migration and inheritance and just the sort of feeling, I suppose, that um, there can be a lot of fragmentation um, in that sort of relationship. Um, you know, the fact that with migration, it, the change happens so fast. There's so much geographical change, um, there's change in class, change in language, um, change in culture. Um, and so you can sort of know something very intimately and feel it very emotionally, while at the same time, you might not know its proper name, you might not know its history. 
Um, I don't think the daughter is sort of contending with that very much. Um, at the same time, I think I, even though I'm sort of using words like lack and loss and things like that, um, I don't necessarily feel that it's a, it's a negative thing. I think that that's sort of the gaps in that and that idea of fragmentation can actually be quite rich and quite poetic. Um, so, yeah, I think those are some of the layers um, all sort of wrapped in together and how they impact each other um, and are not just isolated. Mm. And fiction writers are often asked how much they draw on their own experiences when writing a book. I wonder, is this something you have been asked to comment on, um, particularly in relation to the mother-daughter relationship, which is so central to the story? Uh, Yeah, and whether you feel it's appropriate or inappropriate for authors of fiction to be asked about this personal aspect. Yeah, I think um, it's not something I've been asked completely directly, but I can sense the curiosity, I suppose, because it is also using a sort of auto-fictional voice. Um, and, I mean, I don't know if I, I have sort of a very complex opinion on it, I guess I would say. Um, I can understand why people ask it. Um, I can understand why authors don't want to be asked. Um, and I, I think that's a lot to do with the fact that maybe in the cultural perception, it's a very either or sort of thing. It either mm. is purely autobiographical or it's purely fictional. And I think that the worry that maybe I have and maybe other authors have is that people will misunderstand if you say that, yes, it's, it's sort of taken from life. They'll think that you mean that it's exactly you. Um, but my answer to that would be that a number of things, um, you know, we sort of, it's, it's never really exactly you in the sense that um, you sort of change anyway throughout life. So what was you a year ago when you were writing a particular page on that given day at that given hour is not you five years from now, for example. It's not static. Um, and number two, I would say that in terms of writing, um, you know, all writers, whether it's memoir, nonfiction, poetry, fiction, we are taking from life. It's just the matter of degree that you abstract from that taking, I think. Um, and even memoir itself, I would say, would have a very fictional element to it. Um, so it's, it's very kind of stretchy and porous. Um, so I certainly am thinking about a certain emotional truth, and I certainly am picking out some details, whether it's from my life or other people's lives or family life or friends. Um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of pick them out. But each one I will sort of... Um, stretch and craft and change um, in order to get to an emotional truth. And that's not exactly the same as the factual truth, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, that's really interesting that you make that comment, even in the context of memoir. And it sort of relates to some of the themes in your book about memory and how um, time and even things like migration can sort of shift experiences and recollections and um, what can be shared or what can be held back and the gaps. That's kind of really interesting because you've touched on all those uh, things in this book and, yeah, what you're really saying is these are parts of the way we live as human beings and how we experience life and that can even... um, be the case when one is writing uh, in the memoir genre. Yeah, I think so. And I, I guess it's more that if you were to ask two people their recollection of a certain event, you would get two stories and which one is truer. They both could have been there. They both could have had very sharp memories. It's just that, you know, because of 
our experience and our personalities, we, we yeah, experience things differently and we'll pull out different details and remember things differently. And I guess it's just about the understanding that something is true to us and that there are many different ways of remembering and, and many different truths. Mm. We've just got time for one more question. Um, the book's been translated into 18 languages. I wanted to ask you um, whether you've been involved in that process and been consulted by the translators and whether you worry that the eloquence and subtlety of your writing uh, will translate as beautifully in the translated works as in your work. Um, it's, it's been a sort of varied. I think generally my understanding is that I, I, my experience and understanding is that I haven't had much interaction with the translators. Um, and, you know, I think in a way it's, it's because the act of translation is a sort of creative act in itself. And I, I guess um, I was listening to a podcast and the translator said that if um, he was to accept the work, you know, idea of translating a work, it's because he feels he knows that voice and knows it so well that he shouldn't need to ask further questions. Um, so I, I haven't actually had much interaction with the translators. I did have maybe one um, sort of email exchange with the German translator, um, which was quite basic but, but quite nice. Um, I think one interesting thing that did happen was that apparently um, the word Colden, the title Colden of the Snow doesn't always translate very elegantly into other languages. Um, and so, for, for example, for the Italian version, they had to change it to, um, I think, something like Tempo di Neve, um, which, as far as I'm aware, is actually a kind of a term for the weather. It literally means a time for snow, but it's a term that they use to describe a certain weather condition um, in Italy, which I thought was actually quite nice. Um, well, as far as whether I worry, um, I don't think I do. I think that I sort of, you know, have to have a certain trust in the publishers who bought the rights. Um, and again, I, I guess, I guess personally, I have such a huge respect for the act of translation and I read a lot of translated literature um, that, yeah, I, I just suppose I trust that um, they'll make it into something of their own. Well, it's tempting to finish the interview asking you what's next, but I'm going to leave that space open, let you enjoy you. your success, <laughs> um, but be assured that when your next idea is ready to seed and sprout, that there'll be a very enthusiastic audience waiting. Thank you. Thanks so much, Claudia. Thank you very much for speaking with us this morning. That was Jessica Owl, author of Cold Enough for Snow, which won both the Fiction Prize and the overall Victorian Premier's Literature Prize for 2023. The book's published in Australia by Giramondo Publishing. And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Don't go away. Uh, we'll be back after a few community announcements. And I'll be speaking with Narita Waite from the Aboriginal Legal Service about the latest developments on bail reform in Victoria. Live it up at this year's National Sustainable Living Festival, showcasing solutions to the ecological challenges of our times. Join the sustainability movement for a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Featuring the great local picnic at Royal Botanic Gardens for a big green day out with ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiadis. Full program online, slf.org.au. 
The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Sometimes I tears a wonder Sometimes I tears a wonder what goes on Sometimes I tears a wonder Sometimes I tears a wonder what goes on Like a burning bright star shining in the
Did you know that women make up just 2% of tradies? AMWU Victoria wants to change that, but we need your help. Are you searching for a rewarding career with a high-value skill set? It's time to consider becoming a tradeswoman. For more information, come to the Hume Women in STEM and Construction Careers and Jobs Expo on Wednesday the 1st of March to kickstart your career. Register at Eventbrite or visit amwu.org.au slash events underscore W-I-T. The Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Victoria is a 3CR supporter. And that was Times Like, Gle- Times like These by Glenn Barber. And now we're going to head over to Claudia. Absolutely. Thanks, Sonera. Um, and just a content warning uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. The next segment contains the name of a person who has died. Okay. Victorian human rights and legal groups have been calling for reform of the state's bail laws for years. Now, the coroner investigating the death in custody of an unsentenced First Nations woman has rebuked the system, describing it as a complete, unmitigated disaster and recommending urgent reform. Yesterday, pressure on the Andrews government mounted when the Greens Party demanded the government introduce reform of the bail laws within three months. Dan Andrews has rejected the demand, stating he won't be rushed in drafting legislative change. We speak to the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Centre, Narita Waite, to hear her perspective on these latest comments and why the matter of bail reform is just taking so long. Good morning, Narita. Good morning, Claudia. Thanks so much for joining us on Breakfast. I don't know that we've had you on the program, uh, at least in the time I've been here, but I feel like you're a household name at 3CR because uh, I know you talk frequently with our um, presenters on various programs like Done By Law and I've often attend the VALS uh, webinars which are wonderful ways of hearing about all the fantastic work you do and uh, yeah, so I kind of feel like I know you. Maybe 3CR will make me an honorary employee at some point. Oh, yes. Well, you'll be very welcome. <laughs> um, so what was the Victorian Legal Centre's response when it heard Mr Andrews saying he won't be rushed on this? Mr Andrews has had since 2018 um, to fix his mistake um, when it came to hasty reforms. Reforms, might I add, that it only took them four months. Um, to develop, introduce and pass. Uh, the fact that even at that stage, when those reforms are being introduced, bail was still considered non-compliant with the rickety recommendation from 30 years ago um, suggests they've had more than enough time um, to develop an appropriate bail system that's fair for all Victorians and protects our rights to the presumption of innocence. Mm. It's um, quite amazing that despite all the recommendations, reports, reviews, inquiries and forums um, that Victoria has failed to implement changes. I mean, we've had this situation in the public uh, space for so long, calling it an incarceration crisis and, you know, on an Australian-wide level, it's been described as a second convict phase. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an appropriate uh, It just seems... I myself prefer to call prisons and munitions um, because of the way that um, 
they incarcerate and institutionalise and traumatise Aboriginal communities. Yeah. Um, why is it so difficult to get the government to act? Because the government fails to treat public health issues like health issues and instead go for the, what they see is the easy route, which is taking a justice approach. Um, and despite learning from generations that this approach doesn't work and, you know, even um, examples from other jurisdictions, like the example of Northern Territory right now, that shows you um, the justice approaches don't work, that you need um, long-term investment into public health matters, um, like housing, like infrastructure, obviously um, primary and secondary health services as well as mental health support. Um, our client base, uh, so the 3.5 Aboriginal people arrested each day in Victoria, um, are suffering from mental health, from homelessness. Um, they're suffering um, from substance abuse. And rather than being able to access essential supports they needed, um, they're remanded on petty offending where they have no access to the services they require. And they, in fact, don't have the same level of access as, an, as a sentence prisoner would do to support services. That includes healthcare. That's a really interesting um, distinction that uh, there's even inequity in the ability to access those supports um, within the prison population. Exactly. Um, and it adds to the overall inequality in the system. But um, you also must remember for both unsentenced and sentenced prisoners alike, the current health provision is substandard at its best description. Um, it's fatally flawed. Uh, as we saw in the Veronica Nelson, everything and everyone failed. Um, and quality frameworks were insufficient to ensure that people's healthcare was, health needs were met. And there was an inappropriate system to deal with those who have substance abuse issues. And in fact, a deep stigmatisation of any associated health issues they had. Um, that still prevails today. Um, and it's still, despite the government's announcement about changing State Gillis Frost Centre um, to a public health provider, men's prisons don't benefit from those healthcare changes. And instead, they'll be stuck with, prov with private providers like Correct Care Australasia who fail their clients at each and every stage. So bail reform really fits into this very big picture of um, social and health service inaccessibility and lack of funding and mm. a framework that has got layers of problems. But zooming in on bail for uh, the purposes of our conversation, I wanted to give you an opportunity to set out what your specific proposal for reform is. But first, um, I wonder if you could take us back to one of the fundamentals of our legal system, which is mm -hmm. the presumption of innocence. Can you remind us what that is and how Victorians, uh, Victoria's bail laws uh, erode this presumption? Yeah, so, I mean, the presumption is fairly uh, self-explanatory. It is that um, everybody has a right um, to innocence and that uh, presumption of innocence. And what that means is that where you are alleged to have committed an offence, you are not considered to have done that yet. You are still waiting for an outcome, whether it be um, a jury by your peers um, or whether it be by judge alone. Um, people who are sitting on remand have not yet gone through, the, gone through that process 
although because the presumption is against bail, they are treated as if they have already committed such an offence um, and they are guilty and a serious risk to community, which just isn't the case for many, um, you know, of the many 3,000 Aboriginal people sitting on that, sitting on remand right now, many of them will not be found guilty of offence and many of them, even if found guilty, will not serve a prison sentence. Thank you. Um, so as a result of, uh, of this system, we have an astonishing number of unsentenced or legally innocent people sitting in Victoria's prisons um, and the number yes, that rate doubled. is rising exponentially. What are the key aspects that Vals wants to change in the current bail law? Yes. In order, um, like we said, to protect um, that right to the presumption of innocence, um, as well as ensuring that we have a fair and just bail system, uh, we believe the laws need to be urgently amended to remove the presumption against bail create a presumption in favour of bail for all offences with the onus on the prosecution to demonstrate that bail should not be granted due to there being a specific and immediate risk to the physical safety of the person, a serious risk of interfering with the witness, or the person posing a demonstrable flight risk. And flight risk means actually fleeing a jurisdiction um, and it can't be that they are unlikely to attend court for other reasons, so illness, um, inability to access support, etc. Um, we would also... Uh, want to see um, that there's a requirement that a person must not be remanded for an offence that's unlikely to result in a sentence of imprisonment. Um, that directly links to the, uh, the right to presumption of innocence, but also just creates a fair system so that people like Veronica are not sitting in, in cells, in prison environments where they have no support, no cultural links. Um, and also removing the offence of committing indictable offence whilst on bail. Um, so it's breaching bail conditions and failure to answer bail. Um, this was an aspect that also caught Veronica up um, because she hadn't attended court um, due to familiar reasons um, on the last occasion and therefore um, worked against her when she was um, trying to achieve bail on that fateful night. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on, on that. Um, there are some mm. particular vulnerabilities that First Nations people face uh, when it comes to bail and I'd like to uh, ask you to explain what some of those factors are and what the specific changes you would like to see uh, addressing those barriers and vulnerabilities. Yeah, I mean, certainly for us, um, when considering someone's originality in relation to bail decisions, um, courts and bail decision makers, so that means bail justices, that means police members, should consider relevant matters identified in case law and colonial findings, uh, which are things that we're all familiar with, such as overplacing Aboriginal communities and our representation in prison populations, um, ensuring they understand that Aboriginality is relevant to bail decisions um, through Section 3AAA, even if the individual's connection to their Aboriginality and culture has been intermittent throughout their life. Um, the role that cultural connection plays in rehabilitation and support, um, and the importance um, of understanding that custody is likely to disrupt the person's personal and cultural development. Personal and cultural development would obviously include matters such as um, their supports they currently have in place, housing, um, but also, as we learned through the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry into the criminal justice system, um, it's incredibly important that we also consider the role that that person plays in the family 
particularly where children are involved, because if they are reminded um, and they are that child's primary carer, if there isn't a suitable family member, that child will end up locked in the child protection system, which, as we all know, is fatally broken. Um, specifically, though, just on 3A, um, we do think that there are distinct opportunities for amendment that should be considered. So making sure that if someone is unrepresented, as Veronica was that night, the bail decision maker must be required to make inquiries to whether that person is Aboriginal and that they are required to explain how they discharge the obligation to consider Aboriginality in, in bail decisions. So that requires them to explain what information they're taking into account to understand why and how someone's Aboriginal is relevant to their bail hearing. And it would not be acceptable for them to say, well, the person is Aboriginal um, and they don't consider that relevant. And you mentioned um, the the role of uh, a person in their family and the risk that removal of that person uh, by placing them on remand places that burden back in the family uh, and the implications for children of people on remand. Can you tell us about Aboriginal women, um, the fastest growing demographic in Victoria's prison and the impacts that is uh, having on communities? Mm. Um, the current bail laws in Victoria just ruin lives, families and communities. When you look at the particular case of Aboriginal women, uh, the vast majority of them are carers of children, um, carers of loved ones, um, and removing them from that environment means there is nobody to care for those people, which means... <coughs> Apologies, that they end up um, institutionalised through trial protection systems, um, uh, through mental health, um, and all of um, the systems that really seek to traumatise and inflict harm on Aboriginal communities. It's also important to remember that the bail test can also affect children in a more direct way, in the sense that children face the same bail test as adults. Now, this might surprise somebody that a 10-year-old is in the same position as a 40-year-old before a bail decision maker, but that is how the system is set up. It's a really unfair situation, which contributes to over-incarceration of Aboriginal children, and especially the trap of breach of bail offences, which lift children to exceptional circumstances. So, for example, if a child stole a chocolate bar, was given bail, and then while on bail, they stole another chocolate bar, because of the, they breached um, their bail offence and the exceptional circumstances, they'll almost inevitably be held on remand. And all they've allegedly done at this point is still two chocolate bars. Yeah, it's really we've had many clients. It is. And, um, you know, in the last month, we've had children um, arrested, um, particularly in residential care, um, for ridiculous things like taking food from the pantry or literally spilling milk. Um, so you have to understand how terrific it is that these children are facing the most punitive bail system um, in the country. And it also just doesn't make economical sense. I mean, it costs over 5000 a night to keep an Aboriginal child in prison. Could you imagine if that money was going into community support, how much better resource they would be, how they would be able to intervene at an earlier point to support families, to stay strong um, and to thrive? We're a long way from uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody recommendation that prison 
be used only as a sanction of last resort when uh, we hear those examples that you're giving. Andrews has indicated he's unlikely to make blanket changes to the legislation. How are you going to approach your advocacy from here? And we've only got one minute left. How can our listeners support you in your campaign? Yes. Um, so uh, certainly we'll continue to do what we have been doing, uh, which is briefing all parliamentarians on the community bail system um, and arguing for key reform. Um, we will continue um, to request people sign our bail, t- bail petition, which you can find at bail.org.au, or you will also find there the link to our newsletter, uh, which if you sign up, um, we have sent out a direct request to um, all of our subscribers that if they want to support oh, bail reform, they have a link uh, to write to both the Premier and the Opposition Leader um, detailing their support for our court. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the work that you continue to do and the consistency. And, yeah, we will continue to support you here at 3CR and uh, I will be putting all those uh, links and uh, references that you mentioned on our show notes so listeners can uh, join the campaign uh, if they're already not involved. So that was uh, narrator. Thank you. That was Nerita Waite, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, speaking about uh, their campaign for change in Victoria's bail laws. And I think that's all we've got time for this morning. It's wrap-up time, Sonara. So thanks, for everyone, for listening and thank you to all our guests. Thank you and see you next week. We'll be back. CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.